Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachand, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, Conversations with Writers Exploring What's Informed Their Books and Their Lives, around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by Karen Joy Fowler and Shannon Leone Fowler, writers who are also mother and daughter. Karen's latest book is Booth, a historical novel focused on the family whose son John Wilkes Booth assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. The story is not one of an individual though, but the story of his parents, sisters and brothers, and the thread of another family too, who were slaves on the Booth's property. Karen's books have been short and long-listed for the booker. Her novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, won the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. That's a book I'm always wary of talking about because the twist is so good and I don't want to let it slip. Her other books include The Jane Austen Book Club, Wits End, Black Glass and more. To Shannon. Shannon's book, Travelling with Ghosts, is a memoir on grief and love and travel. It's an ode to a man she loved and lost suddenly after he was stung by a box jellyfish when they were together in the sea. Her book is about learning to live with loss. Karen and Shannon, it's a total treat to have you both here. Welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We cannot escape history. That was Abraham Lincoln addressing the US Congress in 1862, which is, Karen, part of the epigraph to your book, Booth. Turning to you first, though, Shannon, that truth runs through your story. Was writing your book a way to acknowledge that, to face history? Yes, I think um, it took me quite a long time to write Travelling with Ghosts, much, much longer than I thought it would, even though my mum had warned me that that was the case. Um, and so it was It was quite a emotional journey as I wrote about my kind of past physical journey trying to get over the death of my fiance um and I think really that that is what I learned is that you just don't get over something like that that it becomes incorporated into your life and that you cannot escape history that that will always be a major part of my history and so trying as a very young woman I was 28 when when he was killed to try to incorporate that into my life knowing that I am not going to escape that um, was a lot about what the book was about and kind of the journey that I went on as I wrote the book, the years that I wrote the book. I had three children during that time. Um, I moved across the world. Lots and lots of different things happened in my life. And yet there was this thread throughout of, of the loss that I was trying to incorporate in my life and figure out how to kind of learn to live around that. And Karen, not being able to escape history is also at the heart of your book, Booth, Yes, of course, you have a choice about what stories you write and to flag and to memorialize. And we've read and reread the story of Booth assassinating Lincoln. Why look at it again, albeit in a very different way? Um, my idea of what the book was going to be changed kind of dramatically uh, during the years that I was writing it, which is not unusual uh, in, in my process. I have a friend who said the books that she writes rise from the ashes of the books she thought she was going to write. And that seems often to be the case with me as well. So when I started out 
thinking about booze. Um, I'd, I'd been thinking about the booze family for a while. I'd written three short stories and I'd done a fair bit of research. And we had, as we do in America, bewilderingly to us, as well as the rest of the world, a spate of mass shootings. And I was thinking about the families of the shooters and how, you know, for the families of the victims, obviously, um, the pain, as Shannon has just said, is is lifelong and unendurable. But for the families of the shooters, there is a special uh, a special pain, I think, uh, of of complicity and questions about complicity. And because I'd been thinking about the booze and that when this issue started to uh, overtake me, it was natural to turn that issue to the booze. And uh, for as much as I had read and heard about the Lincoln assassination all my life, that was a question I'd never seen addressed, which was the impact of the assassination on his family. So I started with that in the years I was writing the book, Trump was elected president. Um, my vision of my country changed dramatically and my focus sort of moved from the issue of the shootings to um, the, the endurance of the civil war in America. Well, I've read in, in your acknowledgements, Karen, all the thank yous to people you helped um, you researched this book, and I, I, I wanted to ask how it was navigating between the historical fact and written memories and your own imagination, and then the revision of memory. There's a line in your other book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, um, looking at the past about how it's the unremembered, much-disputed fantasy land of the past, and what, what, what to choose to include and what to choose to cut. Well, this, of course, this is the major issue of writing a work of historical fiction. Um, you know, I sort of think of, of a continuum where historical is on one end and fiction is on the other, and a book can fall anywhere along that line, more fictional than historical, more historical than fictional. Um, but uh, there's always going to be a large fictional element, I think, just filling in those gaps and those unremembered bits um, which have to come out of your imagination. Having said that, you know, the whole question of the historical record uh, and the authenticity of it, the authority of it, is a very live question as well. I, we've, we've learned um, in, in the past decades that our memories are very unreliable. We've learned that eyewitnesses' accounts are very unreliable. Um, and we've learned that um, fantasies flourish in our population, um, deliberately or not. And so you put those three things together, and you're obviously on very shaky ground whenever you talk about history. Certainly um, in, in America, history is very, very contested. Um, contested place to be and the other the other quote at the beginning of my book is from Frederick Douglass who says that America is false to the past false to the present and binds herself to be false to the future yeah very prescient unfortunately 
Um, and Shannon, exploring memory in your book, it was very apparent to me, you know, you're not wanting to forget, and yet the pain of remembering and also the natural morphing, as, as Karen says, of memory and the fading of memories. Does, does travelling with ghosts ever become one of those rare things, an unchanging memory? And in that sense, is that what you wanted to secure? Um, I think certainly the, the scenes in Thailand where Sean died um, just seem indelibly marked in my brain. Um, although that night I do have gaps in my memory. Um, one of the things that my mom can um, back me up on is I actually spoke to my father that night. I called a number of times, I left messages, and I spoke to my dad at one point that night, and I have no memory of that, none. Um, whereas kind of, I think the couple of hours immediately after he died are so tattooed on my brain. I mean, I, there's times where I wish I could forget them because the details are just so kind of sunken into my soul. Um, very, very tactile details, like the temperature of his hands and how his fingers curled and the way his chest rose as I was trying to breathe for him in the back of the truck. Um, there are times when I wish it, it, it wasn't so solid. Um, and so I wrote all the Thailand sections first, partly because it felt indelible and permanent and, and something that would never change. And partly because it was um, the part of the book that I hadn't kept a journal. So throughout Eastern Europe, I kept a very detailed journal. I was traveling around countries where I didn't speak the language, where almost no one spoke English. I was traveling alone and it was winter. This was before the internet. I didn't have a phone and I didn't have a lot to do. I was staying in very cheap places that wouldn't even have a TV, much less a computer. Um, and so there wasn't much to do except read and write. And so I wrote everything down in my journal. And so when I say this is how much I paid for a certain item on the menu at a restaurant in Sarajevo. That's because I wrote it down. It's because I had the receipt. It's because I kept it. And so in some ways, I think I had these journals and it, and so that was very fixed. And then my memory of Thailand was very fixed, but like my mom said, I think there is something that we realize more and more how, how false memory can be, how we can convince ourselves of things. But I do think it's interesting what, what you remember and what you forget and what in some ways you want to hold on to. And in some ways, maybe you wish you could forget. Although, you know, if I was really given a choice, I wouldn't want to forget those details. I, I want to hold them even if they are painful. Um, but yeah, I think the, the whole experience of going through that trauma and then writing about it has made me very interested in a memory. And the way the stories we tell ourselves can sometimes stay the same as you're discussing and sometimes evolve. And one thing that some people think is after someone has suffered trauma, that telling the story, telling a counselor, telling anyone what happened allows you distance because you, you kind of create the narrative. And then that's the narrative that you stick to. And, you know, you tell the story in the same way over and over and over again. And in some ways it does, it provides some distance, which seems counterintuitive. And yet sometimes I will find myself telling someone what happened and it feels like fiction. It feels like, God, did that really happen to me? I've told this story so many times. Did that, 
I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like that's a very roundabout way of answering your question. Hey, there's a, there's a line in your mum's novel, um, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which is about kind of an oft-repeated tale. But that book, Karen, it tackles head-on how experiences are remembered and how memories can become fuzzy. And, and given all your interrogation of memory in, in so many of your books, do you think in your own life... You, you're more circumspect than most in recollecting your own past, maybe even sceptical about memories that you hold. I, th I think that um, I am discovering uh, that, I, that I do not have a good memory for events in my life at all. I was going to say two things in response to what Shannon said. First of all, she, she misspoke when she said her journey was before the Internet. Um, she meant it was before she had a phone and, you know, sort of constant um, access to the Internet. But she would go to Internet cafes almost daily and she would email me. And that was just um, so comforting because we were so worried about her state of mind. When I traveled at her age, uh, you know, I... Uh, my parents wouldn't hear from me for weeks and that would have been very, very hard on us. Very, very worrisome. So, um, so she did, you know, she did keep in contact in a way that we were very, very grateful for. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is that um, she has kept a journal almost her whole life. Maybe when starting when you were eight, do you think Shannon? Um, yeah, it was a Ramona Quimby journal. Ramona Quimby journal that she started. When I was eight. And I've, I've always thought, you know, well, that's what writers do. And yet I've never been able to manage more than a week of that in my own life. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, um, maybe my memories are, are less shaped by the fact that I did not put them into words. Um, and on the other hand, maybe they're just gone because I did not put them into words. But um, I, I, like Shannon, I'm very interested in memory and uh, I'm constantly being reminded of things that I've said and done um, that I have no recollection of saying or doing and, and that actually don't seem plausible to me that I said or did them. Snap. Uh, and it's yeah, it's getting more and more muddled. But Karen, because of the, the sure-handedness of of your writing in Booth, I I really start to believe your book, to start thinking of it as a historical account. And I have to keep reminding myself this is fiction. I I wanted to ask if you feel any responsibility for your convincing prose, because I I'm quite seduced by your version of the truth. But you know, where does that leave me? Where does that leave you? In a place of great doubt, I would think. I did. There is a lot of information on the Booth family. I am not the only person obsessed with this particular tribe of people. Um, and so when I went looking, when I went to do the research, there are just vast, vast quantities of it. And how much of it is reliable is uh, an open question. I think that... Uh, a lot of newspapers after the assassination scoured the country for people who knew John Wilkes and they paid for stories about him and about the rest of the family. And in many ways, 
you know, the more salacious the story was, the greater the payment might be. So people had a very clear incentive to make things up about the family. And so that there's a whole um, a whole aspect of the historical research that is clearly mythology. Uh, and yet it's been repeated and repeated and repeated in it until it takes on a sort of authority. You think, well, I saw this in quoted in four different sources. So how can it not be true? So um, it was just, it was very tricky. I depended a lot on Asia. Uh, she is the youngest girl in the Booth family. She wrote three books. I depended a lot on her third book. Um, and then, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful book. She's really a very good writer. Uh, and I, I took most of what she said as things that actually happened, although, um, as we've just been discussing, um, that may not be the case. Um, I had a lot of letters from Asia and from Edwin, a middle brother. Um, so I ha and, I, and I had accounts of people who were around them um, prior to the assassination. I tended to put more weight on memories that people had shared before the assassination than on memories that people shared after the assassination. And then I had this one point of view character, my third point of view character, the oldest girl, Rosalie, about whom there was very little. And she really functions as a fictional character in the book. So to the best of my ability, I put nothing in the book I believed was untrue. And, um, and most of the things I made up involved the dailiness of their lives, what they said around the dinner table, um, the large events, the large movements. I have done my very best to be accurate when I could be. Well, it was quite a dance between um, fact and, and fiction. And, and you're both so agile also, I think, when it comes to upturning chronology you you both frequently jump cut time and and flip between past present and future shannon you first is is that how your book kind of unfolded naturally or, or was it your way of handling what is past as prologue um it was definitely an evolution but i think um and i mean my mom may even remember better than i can kind of where I started with the structure because I had I've had the structure that I ended up with for so long um and it kind of started out as a number of reasons I I didn't want to write the book with a gotcha at the end that he died I wanted the reader to know at the beginning that he died um and that this wasn't gonna surprise someone kind of halfway through um but I also really wanted Sean alive in the book. So I wanted these snapshots. So the reader got to know and love him the way I did. I wanted his personality on the page. Um, and the reason that I ended up settling on the structure that I did, so I jump around really, I kind of have three threads where there's the immediate aftermath of his death in Thailand. And I'm talking about hours, minutes, days after, and that is told in a chronological, that thread is chronological within itself. And then traveling through Eastern Europe in the months after he died is another 
chronological thread on its own. And then I have these snapshots that are completely jump around all over time and space. I mean, they go from Africa to Europe, to Australia, to America, all over the places in the world that I traveled with Sean. And those are not in any kind of chronological order. And what I like about that structure, even though I, I, can understand that it might be confusing for some, um, and a lot of people might not like that style at all, is that's what it felt to live it. While I was in this intense grieving period in Eastern Europe, I would be traveling around a country like Romania, and inside my head, I would be bouncing back and forth between watching him die on that beach in Thailand to remembering a time where he proposed to me in Shanghai or where we were hiking in Spain and said that we loved each other for the first time. And then I would be back looking at his body in Bangkok. And then I would be back in Romania. And that was very much what it felt like to experience those really intense four months that I was traveling around Eastern Europe, that my head and my heart were all over the time and place. And I was constantly revisiting his death and his life while I was in this kind of bleak Eastern European winter. And so I, I like that it turned out that way. It felt, I mean, I think, you know, another thing that both my mom and I kind of keep coming back to is I did the best job that I could to make it as accurate and as factual and as true to my experience as I could. Now, obviously, you know, Maybe I made some mistakes here or there. Maybe I did some things that were confusing, but that's what it felt like. I think just as a sort of um, technical decision as well, that um, Shannon thought, I think quite accurately, that the bits in Thailand were so intense and so painful that the reader was going to need a break, that that it couldn't just all be done in a single you know, um, page by page by page. Well, that no, it's funny that you say that, Mum, because that was actually you, I think. I actually think I wrote, so I wrote Thailand first because it was so intense and it was so emotionally difficult for me and I didn't have a journal to use. So I wrote the entire Thailand thread first and I think I gave it to my mum's writing group and everyone said, I can't even breathe. I can't, it's, it's too much. It's too intense. It's so dark. It's so painful. You need to split it up. And at first I was really offended. I said, you guys can't even read. I lived it. I lived it. And you can't even read about it. But I came around to, <laughs> to understanding that a reader's not going to go down these dark twisted hole if they don't have to. So I think you were the one who, who pushed All that. Right. Well, <laughs> I am, I am demonstrating in real time, the limits of my memory. Yeah. Well, I can also see, um, Shannon, how, yes, it's a real reflection of natural living where we kind of flip through scenes in our, in our heads. And for Karen, you, you've done that too. And, and perhaps in Booth, it's inevitable, given that your readers know the denouement to that story. So in a way, did that force you to play with time? Um, I think in some ways that sort of structurally that Booth is an inversion of we are all completely beside ourselves, that I wrote we are all completely beside ourselves around this information that the people in the book have, but the reader does not have. Um, and so that's that's the twist, Michelle, that you were referring to. Um, with Booth, I had the opposite um, issue, that there was something that the readers knew that um, 
that the characters in the book did not know, and that that's the impending assassination. So um, I wanted, um, and again, this is sort of you know my own attempt to make an accommodation with the fictional parts of the book and the historical parts of the book. Um, is that I I wanted not just the three point of view characters who did not know that this was coming, but I wanted an omniscient voice um, that did know that this was coming and could address the reader um, in that place where the reader too was. And what I like about the addition of the uh, omniscient voice is that it allows me to tell the reader things that the characters do not know, but it also allows me to be very open about the things that I do not know. Um, so th there's a section in the book uh, in, in which a, a character, a, a childhood friend of John Wilkes um, has come to visit. And after that scene, I jump to a, uh, an explanation of his death, which is going to happen a few years after that visit, um, and about which there are multiple narratives, how he died, why he died. Um, and so it, it, because I'm in that omniscient voice, I I'm, I'm allow myself to lay out the alternate narrative so that the reader can see that I don't know. I don't know the answer to these questions. Um, and um, but I think in the narratives that exist, you can clearly see in in all cases an agenda. The person has chosen to tell the story of this boy's death in this way because they have a larger agenda in doing so. And so I, I hope it keeps the reader sort of alert to some of the issues uh, about history that we've already um, touched on. I mean, if you'd proposed that to me, I would, I would have, you know, I would have dismissed it out of hand as something completely unnatural. But I mean, I plucked that one out too in my quotes because talking about this man who dies eight years ahead of the moment that you're in, it is quite an extreme, you know, it's quite trailblazing what you do. And and there's a couple of examples I wanted to quote, Karen, with the same kind of idea that you're talking to the reader. You, there's one that you write. The war was several years and a handful of verse to the beautiful Miss Booth in the future, which I loved. And then in your other book, we are all completely beside ourselves. Another kind of direct dialogue with the reader. Bookmark that thought. We'll come back to it later. And it really made me feel like you trust me, the reader, and they're whispering a secret to me, even to the exclusion of the characters. Is that a kind of technical device you know is that we were aiming for a kind of intimacy or is actually just a byproduct of what comes very naturally I think it does come very naturally to me um, to sort of not disguise the fact that there is a storyteller arranging this material and and that this storyteller has particular points that um, I'll say she uh, is hoping that the reader will get in the case of we're all completely beside ourselves. The storyteller is a character in the book and she has a definite agenda and she is shaping the story in the way that she wants. There are, you know, she wants the reader to see things the way she sees them. And so she is, um, she is going to 
nudge the reader in that direction. And if nudging is not sufficient, she is just going to directly tell the reader, you know, this is what I want you to be seeing at this point. Um, I, um, I, I, I just, I, I love the direct address of the reader. I love it in books that I read um and i love it in books that i write and i i think um that uh that shannon had questions about it when she read the early drafts she said it felt very old-fashioned to her and i thought yeah it's so old-fashioned that it's brand new again it's time to pull it out again it does feel fresh too it's the dear reader kind of in a postmodern. yes exactly yeah. The gentle reader. Gentle. <laughs> reader, I married him. Yeah. Or I left him. Um, <laughs> um, Shannon, there's a, there's a section in Booth I wanted to present to you, actually, because you possess such self-awareness in, in your book. And, and it's this passage of your mum's. Nothing will ever be the same, she thinks, which sounds more like a line from a play than something a person says. And yet how true it is. All is lost, she thinks next, which is less true, but not untrue. She thinks that she's performing grief rather than feeling it. What she feels is nothing. And you're writing about your fiancé, Sean, and his death. That elevates your time together and makes it unforgettable. But do you ever worry that it also becomes just a book, if you know what I mean? And I ask you that as a book writer myself, but does the book you know, replace the reality of the memory, whatever, whatever that is? Um, I do, no, I don't feel that it does. And I think probably partly because of the response that I've gotten to traveling with ghosts. And it has never been the runaway bestseller that certainly my editor and my agent hoped it might be. But I continue to get incredibly heartfelt emotional responses from readers and so I think um it's never felt like it's never it's never felt that it's kind of belittled him or performed out of out made a performance out of it because of the impact that it, it appears to have on readers that the readers who get in touch with me and when it first came out, it was actually quite difficult. And it's still, I mean, it still remains difficult. A lot of the messages that I get are incredibly painful. Um, you know, people who have really gone through something horrific and they're reaching out to me. And so, I mean, I think my mom said at one point, you know, that, that I, I must think of the book as a success because of the impact that it has had on readers and the number of people that have gotten in touch with me and continue to get in touch with me. Um, so I think it can be a fine line. Like there's certainly, you know, interviews that I was doing around the time there's, you know, one on Netflix, which keeps popping up, you know, someone who I went to high school with will send me a message all of a sudden on social media and say, I saw you on Netflix. Or one of my friends, one of my kids' friends will say, I saw you on Netflix last night. And, and I think that can be a fine line, um, which interviews to give and how much of yourself to give them. You know, do you provide photos of Sean when he was alive? Do you, how personal do you get? Um, and so I, I guess I feel more wary with something like that. Whereas with my book, I, ha I had control. And... I had an agent who believed in me and 
didn't want to make it an Oprah Winfrey book club book where everything turned out fine at the end and I was all okay and happily married ever after all. And so I, she stood up for it, the book that I wanted, and I stood up for the book I wanted. I mean, I remember my ex-husband, who was my current husband at the time, saying, it's like you're trying to write a book that no one will read. It's like you're purposely trying to write a book that won't be popular. And I said, I just, I want it to be accurate. It's more important to me that, that it reflects Sean and my experience of losing Sean. Um, but I think it's, this isn't your question, but I think it's interesting that you read that quote, because when I read that, I understood exactly what Asia meant um, because there were times, and I think because I was in Thailand when he died and I didn't know anyone, and all of a sudden I was on this small island where I was very visible. I was a foreigner and I could hear people say, there she is. You know, if I walked into a room, there she is. That's one whose boyfriend died, things like that. All of a sudden I became very visible. And there was this aspect of, Am I behaving the right? Am I behaving the way I'm supposed to behave? Is am I am I doing what's expected of me? Am I acting crazy or am I acting the way I'm supposed to act? My fiance has just been killed in front of me. And there is this aspect, I think, for anyone in life, sometimes that you feel like you are performing, you're performing a part instead of just living it. Um so that was that was kind of an aside. I, I had a response to what Shannon just said, which um, links back to something she said earlier about the impact of repeating a story and repeating a story and repeating a story. That I think that um, that maybe one of the ways that can work to sort of lessen the sense of pain is that it moves it more and more and more firmly into the performance category. Here I am telling this story that I've told many times before. I know, I know my lines. I know, you know, how I'm going to deliver it. And something that initially was, uh, you know, very raw um, becomes a more polished performance, and that that's part of the distancing uh, effect that Chen was referring to earlier. I suspect. Um, I know that. Um, I teach a lot and I have a, a number of sort of standard things that I say, uh, standard little bits of, of advice or um, uh, little bits of lectures that I give, that I've given and I've given and I've given. And every once in a while, I'll hear myself saying these things and there'll be a moment where I think, do I even believe a word that's coming out of my mouth? It, it, isn't it time to think about that one again? I was also going to say, because I talked earlier about um, the letters that Edwin and Asia left behind and the books that Asia left behind, that I, uh, that I depended on them a lot, but I'm also very aware that letters and books are in that performative space that you are creating yourself on the page as a kind of character or personality and that they're you know maybe not at that raw unfiltered level that um that a novel is pretending that they are Shannon your book is is memoir of course but it's also travel writing your meticulous notes in your journal you turned into travel writing and you've led a very peripatetic life especially in your 
younger years. Um, now you live in London, you're raising your three children there, but you you grew up yourself in California where your mum lives. There's a line in your book when you reflect on how you felt age 28 when you and Sean were together. You wrote that Sean felt like home. Uh, and then after he died, you described your yearning for Melbourne, Australia, his hometown, to become a home of sorts. And even though at the same time you acknowledge in the book, it says your quote, California should have felt like home. With the passage of time, where's home now for you? Well, ironically, of course, it's California. Um, I think the reason I wrote that, again, in the immediate, the immediate aftermath of Sean's death, my parents actually flew out to Melbourne for his funeral. And immediately after he died, I really only wanted to be around people who knew him and loved him the way I had. And although my parents had met him a couple of times and they knew him and they knew us as a couple um I I really wanted to be around his life and I think um one of the things that I've really found and I don't know if you would agree with this Patel but I certainly have told other people that there's nothing quite so bad as the culture shock of going home that the the worst culture shock I have ever experienced is always going home because it's supposed to feel familiar. It's supposed to feel comfortable and right and like your childhood. And I think when I went back to California as a 28-year-old after my fiancé had been suddenly killed, no one knew me. No one knew how to act around me. The culture was not one that dealt with death at a young age. Um, I mean, I, I very briefly mention it in my book. It's kind of a couple of lines, but you know, I mean, people wouldn't look me in the eye. People would cross the hall to talk, to avoid talking to me. Um, I mean, no one knew what to say and people treated me like I was contagious. People treated me like I'd done things that were wrong. I mean, thank goodness social media wasn't what it is now because even there were a few things I'm sure my mom remembers people writing that we had no business being in the water during jellyfish season and there wasn't a jellyfish season there were no signs there was no knowledge of this um of course I I discuss in my book that maybe some of that was hidden but California had never felt so alien and I didn't really feel at home in eastern Europe either um but it felt right to not feel at home in eastern Europe whereas it felt wrong to not feel at home in California. And um, I don't know if this is something you found as someone who's traveled around a lot and also, you know, has children. California never felt so much like home until I had kids. And then that was where I wanted to be near my parents. I wanted to be by the Pacific Ocean. I wanted my, my children to experience eating avocados and the redwoods and listening to California sea lions bark and Mexican food and mountains and the smell of seaweed and I wanted them to have that all and it's hard it's hard you know maybe I'm someone who home is always going to be the grass the greener grass on another side you know it's easy to put California on this magical holiday pedestal um and ignore the issues like guns and healthcare when it's so far away but but yes I would so I would say absolutely California feels like home now that's probably music to the ears of your mother, I think. Um, Karen, continuing on the idea of, of home, you, you wrote this in the preface to Black Glass, your collection of short stories. What doesn't change is this. I'm always aware that beautiful as the world sometimes is, 
deeply as I sometimes feel that beauty, there is no denying or forgetting that I once lived somewhere so much better. Oh, so when I read that, I thought, if home is where you feel or felt happiest, is your sense of home not somewhere on a map, but a moment past in history? I expect, um, you know, it, that home is somehow early in my childhood. I know that um, I moved to California when I was 11 years old, and I love California, and I have always loved California, but I have, you know, for the fact that I am now 72, and I've lived here since I was 11, I'll let you do the math, um, the fact that I... I still don't feel like a native Californian is um, significant to me in some way. Uh, the first 11 years of my life I spent in Bloomington, Indiana. And I remember um, I, I would tell my kids stories about growing up in Indiana and um, the sort of freedom I had, which I think now it was as much a function of the time as the place. Um, just had so much more freedom than my children have. And my children have so much more freedom than my grandchildren have uh, in, in terms of unstructured days and, and the ability to wander out of sight of grownups and, you know, spend a whole day um, with, uh, with other kids up to no good um, in whatever way we chose to do it. Um, I remember uh, Shannon at one point in her life saying to me, you know, if we ever do get to Bloomington, Indiana, and it's not like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy steps in to Oz and everything is in color, I'm going to think you really oversold it, Mom. Um, and then ironically, when she did get to Bloomington, Indiana, I expect it was not like that moment, but it was a trip in which um, she gave me the idea to write, we were all completely beside ourselves. So once again, Bloomington, Indiana worked out very well for me. I wanted just to flip back to something you said earlier, Karen, about how during the Trump years, it was with your political stripes, a, a, a time of reflection. And I wondered if the notion of home sometimes influenced by whoever sits in the White House and if something like the power of a president if they're able to dislocate you even give give rise to a sense of homelessness because it doesn't feel any more like the place you belong I think that yeah I think you've um, beautifully articulated some things that were very incoherent in my head but um when, when Trump was elected, uh, I quit writing Booth for quite a long time. Um, and I was really undone by the election of Trump. Um, I happened to be in London at the time, and I stayed up all night to see the returns. And Shannon went to bed, and she said, wake me up when Hillary is president, or when, Hil you know, when Hillary is declared the winner. And then, you know... She got up in the morning and she said, you never woke me up. Um, uh, it was, you know, it, it was, uh, I, I had from my place of privilege, 
I had really believed that the election of Barack Obama meant something in terms of the progress we were finally making um, along the racial issues, which have always been at the center and foundation of everything that happens in America. And then, you know, the election of Trump proved to me that that wasn't true at all, that the vision I had been allowed for a few years to have of my country was a false vision. And that instead I was in a place that I found much meaner, um, has continued to get much meaner on an almost hourly basis. I still live in California where things are much more the way I like them to be. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I I feel very much um, very concerned about the country. I I I think one of the clearest um, connections between now and the Civil War is the sense that I have, based on what I see online mostly and on the news that a good chunk of the country really thinks of me as their enemy, you know, not just as a person whose politics are different, but as someone who is actually poisonously, um, you know, that, that my behavior must be stopped by any means necessary. And I don't remember having that feeling before, although I've certainly lived through tumultuous times. I finally wanted to um, maybe ask the rather dreaded question always about what you're working on. Um, but Shannon, you have kind of indulged me already that there's an essay that you're kind of tinkering with. So I wonder if you might be able to tell me more about that. I said I was writing an essay. I've got lots of ideas. Um, tweaking an essay. I'm going to like drill you down on that one. There, oh, is it the ghost essay? Well, you didn't say, but... So there's an essay that I think needs a few, an essay I love that I have yet to be able to publish, even though I've tried and I think it needs a little bit of tweaking. Um, and I do love it. You know, the one I'm talking about, Mum, the ghost essay. I, do. Yeah, um, do. I love it. And I, I don't know why I haven't been able to publish it. So, I mean, I have that one and I, I don't think it needs much. It just needs a little bit of updating, but I mean, I, I, I wish I was working on writing. I, as you know, I've started a fellowship. So I'm actually taking 50 19 year olds to Wales tomorrow for six days to do a field course um, in kind of basic field, field methodologies for biologists. Um, I'm studying seabirds in Alaska and between that and the kids, and I have a few private memoir clients, I just have no time at all for my own writing. I have lots of ideas, lots and lots and lots of ideas. Um, and it's just getting the time. I mean, right now I'm, I'm primarily working as a marine biologist again. Yes, Dr. Fowler, which, you know, Dr. is a Fowler. whole other um, part of your life, which we haven't yeah. done. Um, and Karen, to you. Well, I have the opposite problem of Shannon. I have the time. I don't have the ideas. I'm, uh, she keeps saying to me that I need to give her another idea. I know. I, I'm waiting on Shannon, and Shannon has informed me that that, that pipeline has dried up. That, uh, I'm keeping my ideas to myself now. Yep. yep. Um, so of those lots and lots and lots of ideas that she says she has, some of them are probably mine, but 
She is refusing to turn them over. I am going on a retreat with a bunch of friends. I do this every year um, in November. And um, I am hoping, I'm going to try to write uh, a middle grade book, which is basically in my head, a love letter to librarians. I feel librarians are are having a, a difficult time here that they are behaving heroically as they always behave. They are often the last line uh, between the First Amendment and the people who want to ban books. And so I'm just, um, I've got this idea for a story I'm hoping it won't take terribly long to write it and that it, it is just meant to say thank you to the librarians in my life and in my country and in the world. I second that. Well, I wanted to finish on a line from your book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. There are moments when history and memory seem like a mist, as if what really happened matters less than what should have happened. That, Karen, sticks with me. Karen Joy Fowler, Shannon Leone Fowler, thank you both for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thank, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to the supporter of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent. Goodbye.